Hello, all you positive heads out there. Thanks for tuning your beautiful brainwaves into another episode of the Positive Head Podcast, which I'm excited to say we're now airing five days a week. Once a week, you can still hear an interview with a different consciousness change maker that is out there working tirelessly to help catalyze change and expand awareness on Spaceship Earth. But now, in addition to the weekly interview, on the other four weekdays, you can tune in to myself and my co-host, Dalian, taking questions from the audience, covering a bit of positive news, giving interpretations of a favorite quote to ponder, and you can hear us ranting about whatever other positive ponderings come to mind on that day. And as you guys might imagine, producing this podcast is definitely a labor of love for me and Dalian. But make no mistake, it takes a lot of hard work to put it together for you guys, especially now that we're doing it five days a week. So if you enjoy the fruits of our labor, please go over, give us a good rating and a review on iTunes. Uh, subscribe for free while you're at it, of course, if you haven't done that already. Uh, iTunes truly is the holy grail when it comes to podcasting and good ratings and reviews are what help our iTunes ranking so that we can gain more exposure in the massive sea of other podcasts that are out there. Uh, even if you have terrible ADD and don't want to take the time to write out a review, trust me, I get it. I'm a bit of a spaz too, but please take at least, you know, the 9.2 seconds it takes to give the show an honest star rating, which only takes one little click. I assure you it will be very much appreciated by us and that the good karma gods will rain blessings down upon thee for doing so. Also, this week's episode is sponsored by Procabulary.org. Procabulary offers a brilliant new online language course that I just recently completed myself called Core Language Upgrade. The course material itself is designed to help you analyze and then reprogram the way you use your words and language to create your reality. I personally believe the words you choose to speak or write out is referred to as spelling for a very good reason. You're literally casting an energetic spell every time you open your mouth, which means it's of the utmost importance that you have a foundational understanding about the power or lack of power that the words you're choosing to use conjures up. I strongly believe language mastery is a highly important skill set that way too few people have taken it upon themselves to become educated on. And... You know, for those of you that are regular listeners of this podcast, you know I'm constantly talking about how we all create our reality with our thoughts and words. And what Procabulary does is actually provide you with an incredibly easy to follow roadmap that shows you how to go about reprogramming your language so you can start getting better results in every aspect of your life. And the great thing about the Core Language Upgrade course is that it only takes about 10 minutes a day spanned over 21 days to complete. I personally found the minimum daily time requirement uh, made it really easy to digest and assimilate the empowering information I was receiving each day. Now, as a Positive Head podcast listener, if you decide to go to Procabulary.org and purchase any of their online courses, you automatically get $50 if you use the promo code POSITIVEHEAD, all one word, on the checkout page. I personally recommend everyone starts with a beginner course. It's called Core Language Upgrade, and the retail price for that course is $299. I'd say it's worth every penny, but with uh, the Positive Head promo code, it only costs you $249 after your discount. Also, if you need more convincing about the power of Procabulary, check out the Positive Head podcast where I actually interview Procabulary co-founder Mark England, and we discuss language mastery in great detail. 
All right, all you positive heads, on this episode, I'm very pleased to have A.C. Johnner here with me on the show. A.C. is the writer, director, and producer behind the documentary film that explores the spirituality of electronic music culture called Electronic Awakening. Uh, in addition, AC is also a writer, a researcher on subjects such as transformational festivals, spirituality, technology, and transhumanism. Uh, he actually has a forthcoming book entitled Electronic Revival we'll talk a little bit about. And uh, hey, well, AC, welcome to the show. Well, thank you, Brandon. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, thanks so much for being here. I've been uh, looking forward to catching up with you for quite some time and uh, having seen the um Ever since seeing, you know, the documentary uh, Electronic Awakening, it's certainly something that piques my interest and is close to my my heart and, uh, you know, uh, resonates strongly with me, you know, as someone who is a constant part of the transformational festival culture. And I love your whole perspective on it that you dive into. So I look forward to kind of uh, picking your brain about uh, what, what, you know, motivated you to do this. Well, thank you. I'm, I'm glad you found the film and I'm, I'm glad, uh, in turn, I'm glad I found your show. It's really interesting. But uh, yeah, to get into what led me to make the film, it all started uh, back when I was going to school for anthropology, uh, you know, many, many years ago. And I chose to study brave culture. You know, in anthropology, we study cultures. And so at the you know, very end, we had to choose a culture and a topic, uh, you know, to study. And I had always been curious of electronic dance music ever since I'd been in high school. Uh, there was a friend of mine who had, his life had been completely transformed by this music. I mean, this guy, his social life went from nil to extreme extroversion, like overnight. I mean, he lost weight, his wow. skin glowed, his bedroom wall was filled with like photos of these wild all night dance parties, insane costumes, you know, extraordinary club environments with lasers, visual projections, falling confetti. And I was just, you know, I wanted to experience that. And I, you know, always bombarded him with questions about what that was and what it was he, has, he had found. And obviously I'd seen it change him so much and change his personality so much. You know, I knew that it was something really powerful. Uh, you know, he introduced me to a lot of the music. I never really got it. He, you know, just burnt me CD after CD and I listened to the stuff and I just, you know, it didn't really catch me. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's an experience for a lot of people uh, hearing this music. You know, it's not really, you can't really get it for the first time in your living room. Uh, you know, you yeah, really that was definitely my, my experience uh, when first exposed to electronic music, thinking back into the, you know, way back in the nineties um, when rave culture first appeared, I was, I was pretty much kind of anti, I was just forming a band and like, Oh, I like live music. Like this stuff sucks. And it, it wasn't until, you know, really 2000, 2001 till I had, you know, a girlfriend who was really into house music. And it was the first thing that I actually heard that I'm like, oh, wow, this is actually soulful. And I can really like, I, I really can kind of dig this. And that was my introduction to actually learning to appreciate it. So I definitely can uh, relate to you on that. Yeah. And, and for, you know, for a lot of people, it's really the experience of, you know, hearing it for the first time on, you know, on the mega sound systems that it's made for, you know, at an, at an event that really opens a lot of people up. Um, yeah. But, you know, so anyway, so I was always curious about it, about what it was that he had found. And so I started reading about these events. And, of course, being in anthropology, you know, I was interested in studying shamanism. And when I started reading about these events, you know, I was realizing that, you know, what these kids were doing was, you know, really similar to ancient shamanic traditions of, you know, ecstatic trance ceremonies, 
you know, so they were celebrating a universal human experience of achieving, of achieving ecstasy through music and dance, you know, a practice which had been recorded in cultures throughout the world as a way of connecting with the divine power, mm-hmm. you know, so, but for many of these early cultures, ecstatic dancing was the foundation of their rituals, mythology, and sacred religions. You know, they were connecting with the, you know, with the spirit realm and, right. you know, the ecstatic trance states were, you know, elevated in, into, you know, into these other dimensions in which they would, you know, contact spirits. And so, you know, I was wondering what these kids were experiencing at these raves, you know, if they were experiencing similar things. And of course, you know, my kind of science fiction-y, uh, you know, mindset, like to, you know, dream that they were open up, opening up portals on dance floors and uh, <laughs> accessing these places. But, I, you know, I, I didn't really know the reality of all that. So I presented, uh, I wanted to, you know, take this angle uh, and studying the culture and studying, you know, studying them from a comparison between their practice to these, you know, ecstatic, practi- ecstatic practices of, uh, sh- um, you know, shamanic traditions. And I presented that to, uh, you know, my anthropology department and their reaction wasn't the most positive. <laughs> they were <laughs> you know, like, how can you take this, uh, you know, this traditional indigenous thing and compare it to what these kids are doing, you know, on drugs and nightclubs. And um, they weren't too happy with it. Right. Uh, you know, but kind of, in, you know, inspired by their dismissal um, of me, I, you know, I continued the research and things really took a turn when I discovered uh, an article um, published out of Berkeley by Scott Hudson. And this is back in 1998, uh, in the article titled, titled uh, The Rave, Spiritual Healing in Modern Western Subcultures. So I was like, oh, this is, this is exactly what I was looking for. And so- Right up your alley, yeah. Yeah. And so reading the, I'll read the pretext here. It's at raves, young men and women dance to electronic music from dusk till dawn. Previous scholarship treats the rave as a hypertext of pleasure and disappearance. However, such a postmodern view does not attend to the potent and meaningful spiritual altered states of consciousness at raves and therapeutic results, spiritual healing, such states are said to bring. While physiological processes, exhaustive dancing, auditory driving may contribute to altered states of consciousness, symbolic processes create appropriate frameworks for spiritual healing. Such therapeutism can be fully understood in the context of other spiritual subcultures, placing rave within the context of these subcultures foregrounds for questions of further research. So basically saying that, uh, that these raves were kind of a modern form of, you know, of shamanic healing. And so I was like, okay, so somebody else, uh, you know, before me, who's a PhD has gone out and, you know, said this. So I'm, I'm, right. you know, going in the right direction. And then I found, uh, you know, in the book Traces of Spirits by Robin Sylvan, he writes that, you know, for teenagers and young adults, uh, musical subculture to which they belong provides an all encompassing orientation to the world as any traditional religion. And then in his later book, Transformation, which was actually about rave culture in general, Sylvan set out to investigate the various religious motifs among rave culture in the early millennium, you know, arguing that rave culture was seeding a new unifying spirituality, one that was universal across, you know, all languages, religions, and nationalities. And, and then, of course, then I found Graham St. John's Rave Culture and Religion, which is a tome of research on this topic, and you know, part of the book description here uh, offers insights on a post-traditional religiosity through studies of raves, Gnostic narratives of ascensionism and reenchantment, explorations of the embodied spirituality, and millennialistic predispositions of dance culture. So, finding all these, I was like, "Whoa, okay, so this is real. So there's more happening here than just a dance party." And you know, I went back to my anthropology department with all that I'd found, and I say, "Hey, guys, here's these other anthropologists who." 
you know, who have studied this angle of the culture and they say it's real. <laughs> so in your uh, face, <laughs> face. Yeah. So not, not only, not only were they, you know, excited that I had discovered this, but they gave me a grant to actually go out and conduct field work. Um, wow. Yeah. They, they bought my ticket to Burning Man and all these different, that's a fun grant. <laughs> Yeah. So I, I definitely was rewarded. I got my ticket. They bought my ticket to Burning Man and all these different festivals um, out on the West Coast. And I was going to go out and spend six months going to all these parties and events for the first time, you know, interviewing people and kind of, uh, you know, trying to find out if this kind of spiritual side of the culture was, you know, was really real. And sure. so in 2006, I went to Shambhala was my first event. And, you know, I went there with a That's camera. That's in Canada, right? Yeah, that's in Canada. And mm-hmm. yeah, it's an amazing festival. But it was my, you know, my first party, yeah, good uh, my first electronic music event. And you what know, year was there, this? This was 2006. Okay. And, you know, I went there with a camera and a notepad as a researcher. Um, you know, so it was a different way of kind of stepping into the culture than, you know, most people do. And, you know, when I was there, I witnessed the participants building altars, you know, they were planning sacred ceremonies, they were endowing a mythology, incorporating narratives of electro salvation, techno singularities of ascensionism and, you know, apocalypse, found the participants were praying on the dance floors, um, you know, testing to hearing voices in the music, and some of them talking about encountering extraterrestrials, Um, you know, many of them were talking about this, uh, you know, sacred force or energy that governed all life, which, you know, seemed to me akin to uh, mana in archaic shamanic traditions, mm-hmm. you know, but believing that this force could not only be modulated through like yoga and meditation, but also through ecstatic dance and electronic music. Um, right. And, you know, they also expressed the shared w- worldview of ecology, spirituality, and community, community building, uh, claiming the festivals had played a key role in the production and assimilation of these new values with the festivals acting as a sort of repository of a countercultural ethos. So, so this was all very real. It's, you know, I felt I had discovered something. It's, you know, I'd went out to kind of find this, this side of rave culture that was, uh, you know, Scott Hudson had said was, you know, spiritual healing for, you know, for our modern culture. And I found this kind of a uh, new religious movement blossoming. And uh, as I started, you know, interviewing some of the participants, you know, they were definitely affirming that the shamanic potential of dance and music had opened a clear connection to the sacred and definitely was laying the grid work for what Robin Sylvan claimed was an emerging universal spirituality. So inspired by, you know, by this discovery of this, you know, kind of powerful avant-garde you know, like techno shamanism, uh, I continued um, ethnographic research for several years. Uh, I attended over a hundred events. I think I interviewed like 65 some odd participants and scholars and authors, um, you know, which ended up, you know, being in the film, uh, electronic awakening. But during mm-hmm. that time, um, I believe that what I was recording was the emergence of what's now being heralded as the transformational festival culture in the United States. So right. uh, after my successful Kickstarter campaign campaign in 2010, uh, I was able to acquire finishing funds for the film and uh, finally get it made and had a global release on December 21st, 2012, fittingly. Wow. It's quite a journey you went on there. And I I think that's an interesting point that you touch on, especially for people who maybe aren't as familiar with, uh, you know, the festival scene or rave scene. And maybe you could touch on it for a moment, um, having, you know, being an expert that has explored uh, so extensively Uh, for people who who don't know. I mean, what, what would you say is the difference between a rave and a transformational festival? Well, I mean, the transformational festivals are, um, 
you know, they're the intentional, they're the intentional rave, you know, they're the rave with purpose. Uh, you know, right. I know that, you know, both these events have their kind of Dionysian mania um, that, you know, they are parties, they are, you know, it is a giant celebration. Um, but the transformational festivals themselves incorporate, you know, they incorporate ritual, they incorporate ceremony, um, they incorporate a pre-subscribed list of, you know, core values, uh, you know, that they're trying to, um, trying to embody uh, through the event. Um, so it's really, you know, it's really different from that note that it's, you know, it's partying with purpose. And right. it's, you know, the transformational festivals themselves are kind of, uh, you know, they're a branch, still a branch of the electronic music scene, but they're kind of where this direction of where the spirituality of electronic dance music kind of took off and, you know, transformed into this more, you know, potent spiritual uh, subculture. Yeah. Yeah. That would be my assessment. Uh, personally, I, I wanted to hear what you would say, but um, it seems like the, the rave scene is sort of like the, there's some some you know great concepts like plur you know peace love unity and respect and it's uh but it's almost like this sort of like the superficial version of the you know a, a transformational festival where it's much more um you know you have so much more of this energy of uh music being just a part of it partying maybe being a part of it but there's so much more going on so many workshops and so much um energy and attention put on ceremony and so forth as you mentioned so um, yeah, yeah, so I, I definitely would agree with that. And, you know, and the, and the thing is that the, you know, the rave came first, it was, you know, it, right. I interviewed a lot of these people that were involved in the production of, you know, transformational festival events and, you know, they were all ravers. Um, right. You know, they had, they'd all it seems been to the be the intro point for a lot of people almost that attracts a younger crowd almost. And then as, as maybe you get older and, and as time is, as went along just in, in culture in general, it's, it seems like, yeah, it's kind of like the next step of the rave. Exactly. Yeah. It's, it's, it's the evolution of, I mean, not for everyone. Um, yeah. But for the people, for the people in the scene that do take that direction, I mean, the, the rave kind of, it kind of opens the doorway for, you know, for that, that kind of new spirituality to, um, you know, for somebody to take that on and people that follow that, that trajectory, that's, that's kind of the path that this has opened up to, um, is this transformational culture. So, you know, it's, it's really interesting looking at the, you know, the emergence of the kind of more commercial EDM scene now that's exploding all over the place. It's like, how many of those, you know, how many of those participants, uh, even though though now they're kind of spiritually oblivious, it's like, how many of those participants are going to have, you know, the same kind of awakening experiences and kind of follow the same like trajectory of, you know, yeah. conscious evolution that's happened for the rest of the scene in the early nineties, turning into these transformational festivals. Yeah. Yeah. That's the thing about a lot of, uh, the festivals, the transformational festivals that I go to, it's these amazing electronic, you know, uh, producers, DJs, uh, that compared to the mainstream EDM scene, they're like absolute nobodies. You know what I mean? When you take, yeah. uh, if you, if you're comparing, if you take as far as popularity, it's like some of the people you may find at a ultra or uh, EDC or something like that. They're these huge, like worldwide figures, you know, and EDM. And then, you know, the most popular artists in the transformational festival scene, at least on the West coast, which, you know, California primarily where, where I'm, I live and am, am going attending most of my events. Um, you know, it's, it's, they're, they're big in that scene, but small comparatively. And I feel like the music though, that they're, 
performing is uh, it's really kind of next level. And there is this kind of injection of spiritual energy into it that you're not necessarily hearing with some of the really uh, mainstream artists where it's much more like a kind of a club party feel. Yeah, exactly. I mean, the, you know, the transformational festival community is still a pretty isolated, um, still a pretty isolated event and isolated culture. I mean, even though it's grown, um, yeah. you know, since I, since I've, you know, kind of discovered this side of the scene, I mean, it's, you know, it's quadrupled in size, um, you know, but it's still really closed off. Yeah. Yeah. Comparatively to some of these bigger events for sure. And um, now you actually define uh, the film would be defined as an, uh, an ethnographic. Can you explain what that means? Yeah, definitely. Um, so ethnography is the interpretation of a culture and then to represent that culture, you know, in the form of like film photography or writing. Uh, but, it, you know, it utilizes uh, qualitative methods of research, which is, you know, extensive interviewing, uh, participant observation, which is like, you know, actually going out and, you know, becoming one of the culture and, you know, having mm-hmm. the experiences yourself uh, and then going back and like, and, you know, analyzing that and writing that. And, you know, of course, basing a lot of uh, your investigation on what you're learning through observation. And, you know, in terms of this study, it's, you know, for me, I was asking, you know, why, why are they conducting rituals um, at these events? You know, why are they using crystal grids on dance floors? You know, why so much attention is given to this, you know, this energy? And why are they treating, you know, these events and, uh, you know, the way that they set up these events is kind of like a a spiritual technology. Um, So, you know, going to school for anthropology, ethnography was a big part of my research process. And that was my intention of, uh, you know, not only making this film, um, you know, but the book I'm working on now uh, was to, you know, do a full on ethnography of the spirituality of the culture. And, and, you know, and write about it from that point of view. So, I mean, the first day out when I was at Shambhala, I was taking notes on all the ecstatic and psychedelic experiences uh, that people were having, um, as well as how those fit into the context of the event, uh, you know, their belief systems of the group, um, you know, their different narratives of apocalypse and singularity and context of ETs. I mean, all of it. I mean, it took notes from the perspective of a participant as well as a, a skeptical observer. Interesting. Interesting. And in your opinion, I mean, what do you, what do you feel is happening, uh, you know, on getting back to the music part of it, what do you feel is happening on the dance floor at these events? What, you know, I know in the film you talk a little bit about, um, you know, of course, comparison to shamanic ritual. And there's even talk of, you know, uh, you know, the repetitive rhythms of the music actually create theta waves in the brain and all sort of a hypnotized state, uh, is is that do you think that's the sum total of it do you feel like there is a a spiritual you know opening that's happening in in mass and it's sort of something that to give you a quick example i mean my first year uh going to burning man was 2005 and i always remember my very first night there because it was the only time in my life i didn't take any kind of substance um Mm -hmm. And I felt like I had taken LSD or, or mushrooms or something like that. And the next day I was like, oh my gosh, what happened to me? Like I literally had a trip without taking anything. And the only thing I can you know credit it to now is I walked, I was so blown away by what I was seeing and the scale of it and the energy that I was feeling from, you know, the, at the time, maybe, you know, 45, 50,000, you know, attendees. Um, and so that's all I can really credit it to is like, I stepped into this container with this heightened energetic state and it caused me to have an experience that felt like, you know, I was, I was something major had opened up in me. 
So I'm curious what, what your thoughts are on that. Oh, completely. I mean, um, you know, you don't need the psychedelic if the environment is psychedelic enough. Um, right. You know, and especially if, if enough people around you are already on psychedelics, you know, you kind of piggyback on their experiences. Uh, but there definitely is definitely is a connection, um, you know, to being in close proximity to those kind of altered states that, you know, brings you into the same state. Uh, but to go back to, you know, your an explanation of what's happening on the dance floor, uh, as Electronic Awakening explains, uh, these experiences at these events arise from, you know, it's a convergence of intense dancing as a collective group, uh, the entrainment of brainwaves to beat focused music, taking people into trance and moments of group ecstasy, um, you know, that hive mind experience everybody talks about. And also, you know, the drug MDMA which is sensitizing the body to this music. It releases serotonin. Uh, you know, the music and dance are kind of like a crowbar prying the door open. But once there's an opening, yeah. MDMA and other psychedelics tend to force it wide open. So uh, it's not generally an experience you can recreate in your living room. I mean, the event, and you know, especially like Burning Man, it's one giant psychedelic amplifier. Um, right. <laughs> so what, I, mean, I think what people outside of this culture don't really understand about electronic music, and this is what we were talking about earlier, is that you could spend years listening to this music in your living room and not quite understand the resilience of hearing it amplified on huge speakers blasted over a field or coliseum with thousands of others. And, and you certainly wouldn't get it right until you heard it in conjunction with the powerful serotonin inhibitors, you know, sensitizing your pores on your skin to actually feel the music in the you know, a tactile acoustic sense. I mean, it really kind of opens your pores and lets the music in. Um, I say having that, you know, that first experience of listening to electronic music on MDMA is kind of like a magic eye painting. It's like once you learn to see the three-dimensional image on the two-dimensional canvas, you can see it all the time. But you have to kind of yeah. have that first experience learning how to do that and learning how to see it that different way to be able to see it. Uh, and it's you know, kind of the same way because EDM is primarily percussive. You know, the body responds to it differently. Um, body responds to polyrhythms and a complex layering of various beat patterns. And, you know, while MDMA acts as an pathogen, it sensitizes the body, you know, to the music in ways impossible to experience without chemical aid. Um, I mean, so you really experience music in a different way than you're used to. It's, I mean, you're not really hearing music primarily from an auditory sense, but actually feeling it physically, you know, move through your body and move your body. So the body and rhythm synchronize in step, as well as an embodiment of the sound. And, you know, the music possesses you. And also uh, right. new findings in neuroscience are showing us that repetitive rhythms or percussive sounds actually activate the premotor cortex of the brain. And this is the planning region of the brain, the region that's stimulated when we're about to move, telling the motor cortex what to move. So it's almost like you can't listen to dance music for an extended period of time and not, you know, want to start to dance, tap your feet or like bob your head. It's like, right. you know, you don't necessarily have to enjoy the music to feel this sort of reaction. It's like it's, it's doing that to you biologically. So the repetitive rhythms like will naturally activate this premortal cortex, causing not only desire to move, but a sensation of moving. So even when you're you know, completely still listening to, this, listening to this music, you'll feel the sensation of moving with the music. Um, you know, it's like you know, the four on the floor beat feels like a, a train on the tracks, you know, going along the tracks. And sure. a lot of uh, attendees of, uh, of dance music events will often describe sensations of flying or floating while listening to the music, you know, being drawn in, toward, like, in towards the sound as they're dancing. And, 
you know, the same as, uh, the same as said in shamanism, uh, the shamans talk about flight, the experience of flight to the astral plane when they're in that ecstatic dance. So what happens on the dance floor in this magic moment is, you know, is that ecstatic state of trance. It's, you know, the core experience of shamanic work. And when people are locked into this rhythm and synchronicity with sound, you know, they feel a, a sense of rejuvenation um, and openness within themselves. You know, the world will seem full of possibility, um, you know, and people have visions, spiritual revelations, you know, contact with the mind of the planet or contract contact with extraterrestrials, depending on how hard of uh, music you're listening to or what kind of drugs you're on. But, you know, the whole catalog, right. <laughs> the whole catalog of religious and mystical experience seems to be available in that moment you know, depending yeah. on how deep you go. And, you know, also depending on the genre of music. I mean, people listening to dubstep in a nightclub aren't really going to reach the same place as, say, you know, people on LSD on a psychedelic trance dance floor. So it really right. depends on, you know, how hard and how, how hard and how long people are dancing or losing themselves in the trance. Yeah. Yeah. And one of the things the movie talks about is that it actually uh, at one point references our, our bodies are actually, you know, like tuners and receivers and that we, you know, it actually helps to open our chakras. And maybe you can explain a little bit about that. Um, and for some of the listeners, they might not even be really familiar with what a chakra is. So maybe you can just explain a little bit of that concept. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, it's interesting because I didn't know what a chakra was when I went to my first event and uh, heard all these people talking about chakras and, you know, talking about the energy systems of the body. And, you know, I was, you know, especially taken aback when they were talking about these energy fields of the body being activated by, uh, by electronic dance music. And, um, you know, so that was, that was something that for me, I was really curious about and really curious wanting to explore and kind of get an answer to. And, um, a good book that really kind of delves into that, uh, is Eric Davis. Uh, are you familiar with Eric Davis's work? I, what's the name of the book? I uh, might even remember the, know the book. Technosis. No, I'm not familiar with that. <clears throat> but uh, no, technosis, it kind of talks about how this, you know, this ethereal field, um, ethereal field of like of energy, and this kind of like metaphysical uh, dimension of energy is uh, is you know similar to or is is electricity. And so, when we're talking about the energy of the body, uh, the, in the energy systems of the body, we're really talking about you know the the electricity of the body, you know, the body's nervous system. So. You know, the music itself, uh, you know, it's the fact that the music itself is, you know, is electronic and, uh, and the fact that it, you know, it activates these different parts of our bodies and the different, you know, frequencies and rhythms that are played. It's really interesting to kind of see the, you know, the interplay of that sort of concept, um, you know, being played out on the dance floor. And, and also in kind of the, you know, the belief system of this culture, believing that these, you know, frequencies are actually, you know, spiritual frequencies, like awakening different parts of the body. Right. Yeah. Very fascinating. And, and you know, one of the things that also, uh, you know, I found really fascinating that was discussed in the um, film was, you know, the people that are actually moving energy around when they dance, uh, you know, and, and opening up energy meridians, actually. Um, that, that's something that's a whole nother concept that, you know, you see people a lot of times that, and, and it's something until I honestly saw the movie, I never really thought about it. I just said, oh, well, that's just kind of like someone's style of dance, but really it makes all the sense in the world. When you look at the way, when people that are dancing in that particular fashion, it's like, oh yeah, they're, it's almost like, uh, you know, 
Qigong or one of these other practices that's all focused on, on, on channeling and, and, you know, using energy, uh, that's, that's within the body that we typically don't focus on. And, and especially because it's not something that's, that's visible, but it, it is actually there nonetheless. So I think that's a really interesting point that you guys touch on as well. Yeah. I mean that, you know, the, the whole concept, uh, you know, kind of started in, uh, the new age movement with this, you know, this idea of animal magnetism and, uh, and the idea of these, you know, these energetic fields, uh, you know, that move through our bodies. And it's really interesting to see how the rave culture kind of picked up these concepts. I mean, almost, almost organically, uh, you know, it's almost like, you know, the experience of, you know, especially the experience of MDMA. Um, I had a lot of interviewees talk about the experience of MDMA kind of, uh, kind of solidifying um, the experience of this energy and making them feel it, feel and see this energy as a, you know, as a, as a real, you know, as a real field, as a real magnetic field that was like physically there, you know, that they could play with on the dance floor. And, you know, they talk about when they're, you know, at rave events and they're on MDMA or LSD actually, you know, playing with the connection of energy, you know, between each other and like in their bodies and playing with the connection of energy in their hands. Um, and so for them, it's like, it really kind of reinvigorated this idea of, of, you know, what energy is and kind of uh, helped them establish a new relationship with that concept. Uh, one that, you know, included technology and included, um, you know, included the production of, you know, of music and music events. So it's, you know, it's interesting to see where this culture is, has kind of picked up where the like new age movement has sort of left off with those concepts and is kind of bringing it forward into, you know, a new era of like of technology. Right. Right. Yeah. That's an interesting, uh, interesting way to look at it. And, you know, one thing, of course, uh, the, the film describing, uh, EDM as a source of spirituality, and that's what we're discussing here. Do you, but do you feel like this is a, a, a new spiritual movement that's going to continue to grow And and have you seen it, you know, you've been at this for a while now, you said 2006. So, you know, do you feel you hear a lot of talk these days about uh, a spiritual revolution happening? You know, so many people kind of waking up to the ultimate nature of reality and the one, you know, realizing that all is literally one and, you know, kind of having a shift in, in perspective. And so many people that go to these events, you know, show up on a Thursday or Friday and leave on Monday. And, you know, if it's their first event, they've something has kind of clicked in them or changed in them. Do you feel like, you know, in the nine years or so now that you've been watching this whole thing unfold, do you see it uh, really? Uh, would you say there's a spiritual revolution happening and this is a part of it? Oh, I mean, I certainly would. Uh, this was uh, this was a lot of what my thesis was about in grad school that I just completed. Um, but I looked at new religious movements, uh, which you know are NRMs, which they're uh, they refer to alternative or uh, marginal religious movements, and you know most commonly designated as cults. Um, but the transformational festival <laughs> festival culture, especially, kind of rides this fine line between you know being a culture and being a new religious movement. And many rave collectives and festival communities alike are characterized by, you know, several distinguishing features, which are also prevalent in new religious movements and, you know, like cultural dissatisfaction, uh, religious iconography appropriated from other traditions, altered states of consciousness, uh, radical personality transformation, the creation of community units, utopian ideals, charismatic leadership from certain members and resistance to authorities and dominant culture. So, 
there's, you know, there's definitely, you know, there's definitely a comparison that could be made between the culture that's emerging now and, you know, and new religious movements. And it's, you know, it's, it's almost like this culture is in a sort of proto phase of, you know, becoming a sort of new, new kind of religion or new kind of spiritual revolution. Um, yeah, the one thing that's really different is that in this culture, you know, there's no singular leader. You know, there's no one charismatic leader who's kind of, you know, guiding everyone through. I mean, though McKenna had a pretty good run uh, in the 90s, um, right. but there's no, <laughs> there's no singular doctrine. You know, there's no rave Bible. You know, there's no transformational festival manifesto. There's no Zen in the Art of the Dance Party. Um, so the culture <laughs> remains in this sort of gray area between party and piety, like well, an unstable threshold keeps them from tipping over the edge and becoming yet another organized religion, as could be the outcome of transformational festivals in another hundred years or so. I mean, you know, all major religions start out this way. They sort of start in this like, you know, incubation, um, you know, period. And in the transformational community, I think some people are pushing it in that direction and others want to want it to remain free and clear of such rules and boundaries but the thing is, is that uh, when you start introducing things like ritual and ceremony along, alongside a pre-subscribed list of core values, the free-for-all begins to self-organize around a common set of behaviors, similar fashions, uh, ways of speaking, and things that you're required to believe in kind of in order to fit in and belong. Right, so, right. Which to me seems like a transition away from the phase of social experimentation and open source consciousness exploration to having a well-codified endpoint, you know, a specific goal that everyone's trying to achieve. And I think that that's happening. And, you know, but if they're really- That's where you to- see so much pushback on, you know, from Burning Man, uh, people that have been longtime burners. It's like, that's, that's what you just hear a lot of people jumping up and down about is like, you know, it getting to be- taking away you think back and hear stories of how it was in the 90s and you know just this wide open anarchy kind of thing and it's gotten more and more uh in a box in some some regards and so uh i think that's that's always the challenge because you want to have uh some sort of cohesiveness but also um yeah like you said you're kind of riding the fence right of trying to keep a foot on both sides but that's but that's the natural progression of these things. Uh, you know, you can't you can't live in the chaos uh, for forever. I mean, the chaos is there for for a reason. I mean, it's a phase. It's a phase of um, you know breaking down the pre existing uh, you know sort of boundaries and creating something new. But once you've established that new thing, you know you got to put a box around the new thing. I mean, that's kind of how these things happen and how these movements um, take off. And so, you know, for the transformational festivals, if they're really trying to achieve a transformation of dominant culture and sort of a paradigm shift, I mean, this sort of doctrinated organization is a necessary step. And at some point, you have to close the valve of novelty and isolate the new narrative and the new values. So, I mean, this is kind of what's happening. And I mean, even from the transition of transformational festivals kind of gaining their their title of being transformational festivals was kind of when they took this, you know, took the step in this direction. Um, you know, becoming a new form of spirituality that's, you know, even though they're still in the process of trying to define themselves, um, you know, in terms of how they choose to organize the community and strengthen, strengthen their cult, cultural narrative. But I don't think that the end goal, uh, you know, really is a new religion for everyone, but instead a new relationship with the divine altogether, you know, a new interpretation yeah. that doesn't involve so much of the, you know, 
climbing the mountain through like rigor, uh, rigorous education and practice as traditional religions. I think it's what right. they're doing is creating sort of a new spirituality, you know, one that involves our technology, uh, the science of the body. Um, you know, like I said, a new understanding of, you know, of energy um, and, you know, taking all that in and creating something that's, you know, completely new that we haven't seen before. So, I mean, in the end, it, you know, it is a new kind of religion that's emerging, but it's, it's a religion, not in the traditional sense that we've ever, you know, that we've known it. So it's something completely new that's coming, but we have yet to be able to, you know, see what that is and be able to define it. Yeah. I think the big difference between what we're, you're kind of saying here, you know, and uh, typical organized religion is uh, spirituality in general is in, in my definition, it's where it's, uh, you know, it's much closer to God isn't some external being outside of self that needs to be worshipped in order to be appeased uh, or else is going to torture you for eternity. It's it's so close. Everyone's been missing it all along. It's actually within you. You know, you're you are that divine spark, a, a, an extension of it in the physical form. So uh, I think as long as the focus remains on that um that sort of perspective, it should help guide away from any sort of uh, organized hierarchy where there's, you know, the, 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 the head religious guy at the top of it, who's your communication to reach God or the, the savior or any of that sort of thing. That sort of narrative, I think, um, let's, let's certainly hope that none of that ever enters the, <laughs> the, the festival scene, or I think I'll have to find a new hobby. <laughs> No, I don't think I don't. I don't think it's going to be part of the <laughs> part of the new. Yeah, thing. let's hope not. Let's hope not. Now, your your film film ends on the the role uh, talking about 2012. You know, uh, in the role it played in in the blossoming of this new spiritual festival culture, and I thought that was really interesting because. Um, you know, for me personally, I, my very first experience was with Burning Man in 2005. And then I went again in 2010. And then the first, uh, I guess festival and, and having interviewed actually, uh, Marion Goodell, the CEO of Burning Man, not too long ago, she was very careful. Like we're not a festival, you know, we're an experiment <laughs> in temporary community. And it's like, okay, whatever you want to call it, you know, I get it. I see why you say that. And it's not a, you know, uh, there's not set artists and things like that. It's, it's, it's just wide open. And I get some of the reasons she wants to say that. But as, so as far as my first quote unquote transformational festival was actually in 2012. And, uh, you know, having heard for so long about 2012 leading up to it as, you know, the end of the world or the beginning of this new era of enlightenment and me being the eternal optimist and uh, having been on a spiritual path for, uh, you know, since I don't know, uh, late nineties, uh, and, and believing wholeheartedly that we are entering this new age of, of spiritual enlightenment where more and more people are waking up to, you know, the truth of who and what we are and their divinity. You know, that's of course the perspective that I took. So I thought it was interesting just for me personally to kind of have this long view coming from, you know, the nineties on this personal spiritual path and you know, and I've mentioned this many times before, uh, I would talk about spirituality and things like that for so many years and people would be like, okay, that's really interesting. Or, okay, what are you smoking? You're crazy. Uh, and very few, you know, not finding other people who are on that sort of path on that wavelength, aside from reading some books here and there where I was, you know, had no, uh, 
uh, exposure to these people that were writing the books. So I'm on an island talking about this stuff and no one else in my world seems to even think in these terms. And, and, you know, leading up to really 2012, when I first went to my, you know, first transformational festival uh, and have been to many, many, many since it's like, all of a sudden I just started meeting uh, all these people who are coming online and talking about this stuff as passionately as I do. And, you know, seeing the world and, and, uh, the ultimate nature of reality and, and so forth through, you know, the same way. And, um, so, uh, for me personally, it, it certainly seemed like a, a, a transition point, 2012, where, uh, uh, definitely, uh, a new path was kind of started as far as, um, you know, these sorts of spiritual matters. So I'm, I'm curious what your thoughts, you know, uh, with the film ending, uh, talking a little bit about the role 2012 played and, uh, you know, if, if you kind of agree with that perspective, that it was indeed a turning point, uh, to, to this new spiritual path for humanity. Yeah. I mean, it certainly seems, you know, 2012 was the birth of uh, the legitimacy of this, you know, this new culture. And it also, you know, it was the first year for a lot of people's uh, first time at transformational festivals. I mean, the culture really exploded in that year. Um, You know, so it really, it really marked something significant that happened, uh, you know, not just for the planet, um, you know, but for this, you know, for this movement as well, it was a big year. Um, The, you know, the key term, that I've looked at in all of this is millenarianism, uh, which is, you know, tracing back to, uh, you know, tracing all the way back to the, you know, the early rave scene. It was a big part of, you know, a big part of the narrative, this, you know, this idea of, of ascensionism in 2012. Um, but millenarianism is the belief by a religious, social, or political group or movement of a coming major transition. And, you know, this is a common theme of religions. It's, you know, groups claim that current society and its rulers are corrupt, unjust, and, you know, believe that they will one day be overthrown by supernatural forces, um, you know, usually following an apocalyptic cataclysm. Uh, you know, a new world culture will rise up from the ashes of the old. Um, you know, we've, we've heard all this before. A new purified world, a golden age will come. Um, so, you know, this, is, this was a really common archetype among EDM festivals um, and also, uh, you know, the transformational community. And, you know, looking back at the history of kind of the 2012, uh, you know, narrative of, you know, apocalypse or, you know, global change, um, in 1987, uh, was, I don't know if you're familiar with the Harmonic Convergence. Yes. It was, uh, it, well, it was, the Harmonic Convergence was a, it was a planetary alignment that was, you know, celebrated uh, all over the world by, um, you know, Jose Aguerrelos brought a lot of attention to it, but it was supposed to mark kind of this, you know, the beginning of this transition to, um, you know, into 2012. And it, w- it was also supposed to mark the, you know, kind of the birth of a new culture on the planet. And so it's really interesting that that very same year, 1987, is considered, the, you know, the birth of rave culture. So, yeah, so, it, so like the two kind of, uh, even though they were unaware of each other, it's, you know, the myths kind of, you know, fit hand in hand. So, you know, the early rave culture, you know, they believed when, you know, when these party, parties first started happening, um, you know, they believed they were the new humans. You know, they believed they were heralding a new movement that would raise the consciousness of the planet through music and dance. Um, you know, they believed they had unlocked the tesseract of fundamental religious thought. And, you know, their discovering this was going to save and change the world. Um, I mean, not everybody in the culture, you know, believed this, but there was enough that a strong narrative was established there. Um you know, and of course, uh, you know, the naiveties of that discovery, you know, fueled fantasies of utopia. 
And, you know, Douglas Brushkoff, uh, the author, wrote uh, a science fiction novel called Ecstasy Club, which was about, you know, raves in the Bay Area in the early 90s. And he wrote in that book uh, something he called The Eightfold Path of Ravers. And it kind of uh, kind of describes some of this narrative that they were, you know, that they were creating at that time. But the so the eightfold, I'm sorry, the ninefold path are to become more than human, uh, to evolve consciously and purposefully within a single lifetime to deprogram the social set designed to trap us in mundane thought structures, to reprogram that set as individuals and as a collective, to disconnect from personal habit, character, and ego, to reframe and disengage from mundane attachments to ritual and ceremony, to synchronize ourselves into a meta-organism, no one more important than the other, to increase the frequency of this organism, making it capable of rising above matter, and to rebirth ourselves as pure consciousness, breaking through time itself. So, you know, this kind of uh, demonstrates you know, some of the narrative that was going on there. And, you know, this fed the idea that a supernatural force would, um, you know, that the raves were kind of awakening into this, you know, this kind of new consciousness and that a supernatural force would one day destroy the old capitalistic and unsustainable global culture. And that they're kind of the new consciousness they were bringing in would, you know, take its place. So this narr- this sort of narrative was really popular in the rave scene. I mean, if anything, it provided meaning and substance to the party. And, you know, to an experience that was already shamanic and esoteric and, you know, life-changing, you know, put that up against the backdrop of a countercultural insurgency, a supernatural one at that. I mean, it really solidified an already cohesive community into a collective purpose. And that's really where dance music culture sort of propelled forward away from the chaotic party towards this intentional application. Um, you know, right. now that we see is the transformational cultures that exist now sort of really started, uh, you know, when this, this took a turn. So, you know, back in that time, you know, here comes Terrence McKenna with this time wave zero theory and novelty accelerating to infinity in 2012 and the mind calendar ended and the shoe just fit. And, you know, the culture found its millenary myth of ascension of ascensionism, uh, you know, really legitimized, you know, what Terrence McKenna was saying, it really legitimized what they were already feeling. And McKenna was more than happy to, you know, egg on this idea. You know, he saw rave culture as the new planetary culture that we're going to bootstrap the Mayan myth of apocalypse and a golden age. And even in uh, 1983, um, at a rave organized by a group called The Shaman, you know, Terrence McKenna stood up on stage and gave an announcement. And you can still find this on YouTube, you know, where he says, um, you know, basically that the rave culture is, you know, sort of bringing us 100,000 years into the past and, you know, you know, reestablishing our connection to the divine feminine and the rave culture is the real, you know, real new world. And it's going to carry all of us forward into a world of completion and carrying that we have not known since the pyramids were raised, you know, saying that the wow. rave culture was the final generation that was going to, you know, return us all to the paleo- paleolithic world of magic and psychedelic plants. And, um, and this was 83, 93. Oh, okay. Okay. I was about to say, wow. I didn't even know, you know, the first rave. Yeah. You said 87 already. So yeah. That no, no 90, <laughs> So I mean, so okay. really this, you know, this kind of whole culture that's, you know, that's around now, the transformational culture, um, you know, McKenna called it all the way back in 1993, that this is the direction that it was going. And, you know, not only that, but he, you know, he stood up and, and, you know, gave talks in front of, at a lot of raves, um, to all these people that, you know, this is what's going on. You know, we're right on the cusp of 2012 and this is the transformation that's happening. And, 
you know, to see that that's actually, that's actually what's happened in its history. It's, you know, it's really interesting, but so for many and what has become the transformational community, uh, saw 2012 as this approaching turning point. Yet the narrative of apocalypse was, you know, was, has been replaced by one of consciousness evolution. And, you know, the story gave the strength, gave strength of the scene. It attracted a lot yeah. of, uh, ten, you know, it, it attracted a lot of attention to the community. Um, I mean, it certainly, you know, increased the numbers. I mean, people really wanted to party in 2012. I mean, you said that your first uh, transformational festival was in 2012. I mean, that was, you know, that was the same for a lot of people. Uh, there was a lot of people that I knew that I had been describing these parties to for so long. And in 2012 was like the year that they all went. Um, yeah. You know, so it really accelerated uh, the growth of this culture and, you know, sort of gave them, you know, the push to get over the edge into being a legitimate, um, you know, a legitimate movement in that year. And also in that year, EDM became mainstream, you know, uh, right, right. commercial electronic music festivals quadrupled in size. Um, psychedelics were all over popular media. Uh, so, I mean, was 2012 real? I mean, who cares? The myth worked and that's what's important. Right. <laughs> right. So very, it, yeah, very true. And so it also, it also kind of leaves the mystery open to question if there really were some connection between the evolution of human culture, the planet and the cosmos. So, I mean, really 2012 at the end of it was really a quick cliffhanger for the next Bach tune. Very, very interesting. Yeah, it, it definitely seems that way to me. Like I said, for my personal we all have our personal perspective on how things uh, unfold and with our own, our, our own story. And it was very much like 2012 was a major turning point in my connection to others that are on a similar spiritual path. And now it's all that surrounds me. Whereas for, you know, uh, like I said, for more than a decade, it was like there was no one to even talk to about these things. I, I would do it anyway, just because I was so passionate about it. But, uh, you know, it's uh, it, it's definitely uh, an interesting uh, perspective to, to kind of see how, how it's all unfold. And of course, it's fascinating, which leads to the next question. I mean, what do you think is the future of this movement? Well, um it's, you know, it's, it's really interesting to see where it's gone between when I started, you know, I started studying the culture back in 2006, you know, leading up to that point in 2012 and, you know, then seeing, um, you know, cause when I really, when I started studying this, uh, you know, nobody else really listened to electronic music, you know, it was still this really kind of hidden, um, and underground thing. And people that thought you, you know, that knew that you listened to electronic music thought you were weird. Um, so to see that now it's, you know, you know, blossomed into this, you know, enormous mainstream culture, uh, is, you know, I couldn't have asked for a better ending. Um, but the future of where it's going, I mean, today, uh, you know, electronic music is a game changing genre for the entertainment industry. I mean, it's single-handedly revolutionized, uh, you know, a new generation of youth standardizing ecstatic entertainment, you know, normalizing psychedelic drug use and catapulting, uh, you know, youth desires for extraordinary experiences. So while this new kind of electronic dance music scene, you know, looks commercial and looks like a corporate sponsor form of the, you know, the chaotic hedonism at the core of the scene, you know, the spiritually oblivious, we have to remember, you know, the history of the culture on a whole. And so this is what we were talking about before about, you know, all the people that were were involved in organizing transformational festivals. Now we're all ravers at once. Um, Yeah. Right. So, it's, you know, it's almost the, through that strange attractor of the Dionysian chaos, the seeds of spiritual and transformational fruition were inadvertently sown. So we have to ask if the same thing is happening now. 
And if, you know, and, and if the same thing is happening to a portion of the, you know, the larger, uh, more commercial scene today, um, I mean, now it's, you know, now it's millions and millions of people that are involved in that. So, you know, and seeing right. the increasing fame of, you know, events like electric, you know, the electric Daisy Carnival, Coachella and Ultra, um, you know, are all over headlines and, you know, Time Magazine, Newsweek and USA Today, um, you know, alongside that Forbes magazine. Uh, recently released a, an article, Are Psychedelics the Wonder Drug We've Been Waiting For?, uh, where they actually, you know, exhibit public approval for MDMA and uh, MDMA yeah. research. And, you know, of course, Burning Man, the mother of all festivals, is everywhere now, um, you know, including a, a sandwich commercial for Quiznos. I don't know if you've seen that. I know I did. I did. I saw <laughs> something about a possible lawsuit over it or something, but I don't know if that really happened or not. But yeah, oh, yeah. I did but- see the commercial. But so, you know, so this culture, this culture has exploded well beyond the underground and is now, you know, is now kind of a normalized thing for, you know, for new generations. So it seems, you know, from my perspective, with all eyes of, you know, society and this pre-mutant novelty of the electronic dance music festival phenomena, it seems that pop culture itself is entering a unique paradigm. And in an age of extreme, like technological novelty, you know, social media, smartphones, virtual reality, it seems cultural over the planet, you know, is arriving at this sort of turbulent, like epoch of hyper interconnectivity and weirdness, uh, basically. Yeah. <laughs> but we're witnessing the convergence of all these cultures from all over the world, you know, inspiring novelty and globalizing the avant-garde. So I believe that this widespread public interest in electronic dance music is sort of expressing this deep sign of the times. You know, it's, you know, it's, it's expressing a yearning for connection and for novelty, um, you know, fueled by a disconnected culture with a viscosity of boredom. So, and we have a youth uh, right now that's seeking out the furthest extremes, you know, most for points on Instagram and some, uh, (laughs) and some for, you know, just an expanding desire for the bizarre I mean, if you just look at Miley Cyrus, uh, you know, she's leading a new generation of teenagers back into P- Peter Gation's limelight. <laughs> but uh, but society is always on the lookout for new forms of leisure, you know, new forms of expression and new forms of spirituality. And it seems like uh, the electronic dance music culture that's emerging now is a promising enterprise offering the convergence of all three. You know, as a musical form, it's on par with the musical shift experiencing with rock and experience with rock and roll in the 50s and 60s. Um, as yeah. a form of entertainment, the festivals now represent a you know multi-billion dollar industry. And as a form of spirituality, you know, scholars all over the world have conceptualized raving as a religious experience at its core. And the transformational festivals have demonstrated, you know, the potent evolution of that initial ecstatic seed. So the culture of the world is moving to this new frontier, and EDM festivals seem poised to play a powerful role in sort of ushering in this new era. Yeah. Yeah, it definitely, it definitely looks like it's here to stay and, uh, oh, and, yeah. <laughs> and is only going to grow. So um, let me ask you this. Now, you've, you know, having uh, researched and, and asked so many questions and interviewed so many people at these events, and we've talked so much about the kind of spiritual experience that people can have uh, at festivals. Did, any particular stories that stick out to you that anyone shared with you uh, during your uh, research? Oh, Yeah. Um, one of the best interviews I had was, uh, I guess I can say his name. He signed the, he signed the release paper, (laughs) but, uh, Adam (laughs) Apollo, um, Adam Apollo, uh, and, 
he he gave me an interview where he told the story of sort of his evolution of um, evolution in the rave scene of you know finding finding the parties for the first time you know taking MDMA for the first time uh, and kind of what happened to um, how you know how the parties began to transform himself and also how the parties began to sort of um, open him up into this new understanding of energy and how energy works with the body and how energy works on the dance floor. And, you know, he talks about it a little bit in the film and you're going to have to read my book uh, later on to get the full story that he gives. But it's, I mean, it just makes the, you know, the hairs on the back of your neck stand up of, you know, what he kind of discovers um, through you wow. know the manipulation of, you know, this energy field on the dance floor through electronic music and, you know, what that really is and kind of where the future of, you know, of that's going with, you know, with new technology. Wow. Very interesting. And that's a story that we have to wait for the book to hear is what you're saying. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's in, it's in the book. I don't give too much. Uh, elect, and when is Electronic Revival coming out? Do you, do you know? I am finishing the, um, I've got the first draft complete. I'm going through and editing the second draft now. I'm hoping to be able to make it out for, uh, um, the festival season in okay. 2016. Cool. Well, I will definitely be looking for that. And, uh, I'm sure people listening to this, uh, uh, will be looking for it as well. So that's, that's very exciting. That's, uh, your first book, right? It's, it's my first, uh, my first nonfiction I've done. I've done a few science fiction novels, but this is the first actual, you know, ethnographic anthropological. Uh, okay, study. cool. <laughs> so it's a little very bit, cool. a little bit different. Very, very cool. Well, um, this has been very, very fascinating uh, to kind of pick your ba- brain. And of course, it's something that's so close to my heart, having a lot of these firsthand experiences. So to hear from someone like yourself, who's come at it from such a research-based approach, um, it's it's really interesting to, to you know, and, and even validating for a lot of my own, pers- you know, perspective and experience. Um one of the things, of course, I always like to get from uh, my guests and, you know, uh, I certainly understand wanting to save your juicy story uh, for uh, with uh, Adam Apollo for the book, for people to read in the book. How about uh, an AC story, a story of synchronicity or serendipity or a positive paranormal, of, uh, you know, story of some kind? Oh, geez. Here we go. Got anything to share? <laughs> <laughs> So, you know, yeah, I'm going to ask. Yeah, I know. So it, I mean, it relates to, it relates to this whole study and why I took such uh, an interest in the whole 2012 myth with the culture. So long before, uh, long before I went to school for anthropology and long before I started studying um, rave events, I, uh, you know, I was writing science fiction and I was writing my first science fiction novel and it was actually about an apocalypse in 2012. And I was in Ireland at the time. Um, I was writing this book in an empty library, uh, just spending months and months on it. And I guess all of that, you know, kind of seclusion and isolation and just sitting in front of my computer day after day uh, got to me. But, um, you know, I started sort of imagining you know, what that would really be like and, you know, what two, what 2013 was really going to have, you know, in store. And I created in the book, I created this character that I called the stranger. And uh-huh. as I created this character, I began, you know, playfully, uh, you know, having a dialogue with this character, like as I was writing the book 
And, um, you know, what I kind of got from this dialogue uh, in the book was this idea that in 2012, this global culture was going to emerge like a tribe that was going to leave all the cities and, um, you know, go out into the woods and go back to nature and, and begin living in this, uh, in this new culture and this higher state of cultural complexity. And, you know, so I was writing all that in this science fiction novel. And then, um, you know, I never finished the book. I only got halfway through with it and, you know, just completely shelved it and didn't think about it again until, uh, I stepped out on the dance floor for the first time at Shambhala. And when I was out there on the dance floor and I was here in psychedelic trance for the first time, all of a sudden I look around me and just in this weird, 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 uh, you know, I guess they would call it a download, um, uh-huh. in the culture, but I've I had that sudden, for sure. suddenly looked around and I was like, Oh my God, these are, these are the people that I was like, I was envisioning like years ago when right. I was writing that novel, I was like, wow. this is exactly what that is. This is what's happening. And, wow. um, you know, so of course it was just kind of a playful idea. Uh, you know, I was obviously being under the influence at a, you know, at a rave here in psychedelic trance for the first time, you're going to, you know, think a lot of strange things, <laughs> but, um, sure. you know, but it allowed me to, to kind of open up to, you know, when, when I began hearing all of these, uh, you know, when I began interviewing people and hearing all these stories about, um, you know, about their own beliefs of, you know, the kind of the awakening that was happening in 2012 and their own visionary experiences, uh, I was able to, you know, converse with them and kind of latch onto their stories because I had, you know, I had my own sort of, you know, visionary experience of, right. you know, of that moment happening. Um, it also really kind of gave me an interesting perspective on, you know, what mythology is and where mythologies really come from. And, you know, why you get groups of people that all start seeing the same things around the same time and what that all really means for, uh, you know, for, for spirituality, for, you know, the source of our mythologies, the source of our spiritual beliefs. Um, and if there really is a, you know, one kind of invisible dimension where all that data is stored, um, you know, so that was definitely part of my, part of my interests and, um, you know, the reason why I wanted to focus so much on what 2012 was really about and how that played a part in the evolution of this culture. Very cool. So you essentially were playfully making up a concept for your book many years prior. And then next thing you know, you turn around and look around and you realize uh, you might, you might've been uh, prophetic, huh? <laughs> <laughs> I think you, you can look at it from a lot of different perspectives, but <laughs> That was the, that was yeah, well, the, uh, in, the more entertaining perspective for sure. <laughs> yeah. 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 Well, definitely, you know, I think there's, there's a lot to be said for that sort of experience. And I think sometimes people even discount it or feel, you know, slow to say, um, oh, you know, I had a vision of something or, uh, you know, for me, I've had many things like that in my life from, you know, the day my grandfather died having, you know, when I was 11 years old, having a whole vision of it and then it happening hours later or, you know, having one, something that's happened a lot with me uh, in recent years is when I'll meet someone that in that uh, is going to be significant in my future in some way, I'll get like a very strong like indicator of it. And uh, I've started kind of 
cluing in on it after a while and it's like clockwork it always ends up being the case uh or you know i guess the the verdict's still out with some people but uh you know it's one of those things where i'll get like strong feelings or even sensations like chills from head to toe and so uh, i think there's a lot you know you just gave the example of terrence mckenna predicting it or even even in the movie where i think it's really cool how it's it's, it has jim uh, jim morrison predicting the whole you know edm movement way back what in the 70s right so I think there's, uh, you know, it's certainly information that can be tapped into, and especially when you're already on that wavelength. Uh, and it's a part, of, look at what a big part of your future it ended up being. So for you, many years prior to kind of like, you know, be tapping into that, it, it's, it makes a lot of sense and certainly makes a, a fun story, right? <laughs> yeah. And for, you know, for this culture, especially, and for, you know, anybody who was really into that kind of more, you know, mystical um, aspect of 2012. I mean, you really have to kind of take that ex- those experiences as genuine. I mean, that's kind of what it was about. Was about kind of playing along uh, with those feelings and those intuitions and seeing where they took you. And you know, that's kind of what the culture did um, on a whole when they you know sort of bootstrapped this myth of you know the whole 2012 ascensionism. It's like you know, is it real? Is it not? It doesn't really matter. Because the myth yeah. works, you know, for the culture. It's like right. that narrative. And, and yeah, and when enough people are giving energy to it, it just, you know, it kind of takes on, it, it's like creating your own sort of uh, myth come true, so to speak. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So where, uh, AC, where's the best pe- place for people who want to go check out the movie for them to see it? Let's see. It would really depend on uh, what country you're in, <laughs> okay. unfortunately. Um, How about the U.S.? In the in the U.S., the best place is Hulu. Okay. And outside of the U.S., uh, it's really different for different for every country. I would just say, um, if you just do a Google search for the film, uh, it's going to bring up a lot of a lot of links and a lot of connections to it. Uh, but definitely, if you're in the United States, uh, Hulu is the place to watch it. And it's called Electronic Awakening. Just to, yes. as a reminder for you guys out there who want to check it out. And so, if you can't find it for free, uh, you can always just go to the website, uh, electronicawakening.com, and you can watch it from our site for, I think, two ninety nine is what it's set at. And that all goes back to helping me pay off the film, which I'm still doing, unfortunately, now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, these things don't uh, happen for free. No, so, uh, <laughs> unfortunately. But, uh, well, AC, I, I absolutely thoroughly enjoyed talking to you about this. Um, it's such a fascinating topic and you've done such uh, thorough research and you have so much uh, a wonderful perspective on it also. Thank you so much for, you know, taking the time to join me and, and sharing, you know, uh, all your thoughts and, and letting me kind of pick your brain on this stuff. Um, before I let you go, though, I can't let you off the hook without asking my Put my interviewee on the spot question, (laughs) and that is, what is the meaning of life according to AC Johnner? 60 (laughs) seconds or less, preferably. I I have to take a bathroom break again. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man, that's cheating. (laughs) (laughs) Let's see. The meaning of life is to always be curious and to always follow those curiosities. Well said. Fair enough. I appreciate your time, AC. This has been great once again. Uh, I definitely will uh, would like to circle back around with you down the road when your your book is out and we have you know some more interesting things to talk about. Uh, until then, just keep up all the great work that you're doing. Sounds good. Well, thanks a lot, Brandon. 
Yeah, thank you. Well, everyone, that concludes the Positive Head podcast interview for this week. If you were as enthralled by this topic as I was, and you'd actually like to host a screening of this awesome film in your city, or perhaps at the festival you produce, you can easily set that up by reaching out to the music director and executive producer of the film, Keyframe Entertainment, via their website, which is keyframe-entertainment.com. And also, remember, if you haven't rated us on iTunes yet, go do it now. Please and thank you. Otherwise, until next time, journey well, everyone. And remember, as long as you ain't dead, you're already positive ahead.